0: Hi, I'm Drew Beebe, the host of a new podcast from CNN called Great Big Story. It's a show about the curious side of the human experience. And I know that sounds like a lofty idea, but hear me out. Over the course of this show, we'll talk to some of the most interesting people you've ever met, from brilliant code breakers to a couple building their own artificial island. If you're itching for a good story and you're curious like I am, well, I think you might like this show. Give us a listen wherever you get your favorite podcasts
1: and good evening the president today signaled that he is looking for a way to quote get our country open again he said he was talking in terms of weeks not months and he said it at the end of the biggest single day rise in coronavirus deaths up more than 100 since this morning it now stands at 541 people he asked as he did in a tweet last night if the cure which involves shutting down large chunks of the economy is worse than the disease we'll play you some of his remarks in a moment and debate that question tonight first some context to it since we last left you on Friday, the number of deaths and cases has more than doubled. Nearly 43,000 confirmed cases of the disease, about half of them in one state, New York. Here in New York City, more than 12,000 people are infected, and the mayor today said hospital supplies could run out in a week. The Army Corps of Engineers today began converting a giant convention center just two blocks from here into a 1,000-bed hospital. On a related note, we're still awaiting test results from our colleague here at, my, at uh, 360, I personally have no symptoms and had no close contact with the person. We broadcast from my home on Friday. My staff is all still working from home. Tonight, I'm in a remote studio with a robotic camera, so I'm not in contact with anyone else. But again, no symptoms. Globally, late today, Britain's prime minister put the entire U.K. on the tightest social lockdown since the Second World War. And this morning, America's Surgeon General, the president's Surgeon General, said this.
2: I want America to understand, this week, it's going to get bad, and uh, we really need to come together as
1: a nation, and so we really, really need to so You don't think people are taking it seriously? Well, that was this morning. Now, here's the president this evening, CNN's Caitlin Collins, asking him whether his desire to loosen restrictions was medically sound. said it's likely
3: going to be weeks, not months, before you suggest easing these guidelines that you put out. Have any of the doctors on your team told you that's the right path to pursue?
2: We uh, spoke to them today, and I was telling them that we have two things to look for. Don't forget, the doctors, if it were up to the doctors, they may say, let's keep it shut down. Let's shut down the entire world. Because, again, you're up to almost 150 countries. So let's shut down the entire world. And when we shut it down, that would be wonderful. And let's keep it shut for a couple of years. You know, we can't do that. And you can't do that with a country, especially the number one economy anywhere in the world by far. Number one economy in the world. can't do that.
1: Senator Jim Acosta was listening to the press conference as well and has his own reporting on what led up to it. He joins us now. So the president really seems to be suggesting that somehow the measures being taken to counter the virus are becoming worse than the virus itself.
4: Uh, That's right, Anderson. You heard the president say a number of times during this briefing at the White House uh, that uh, he doesn't want the cure uh, to be worse than the problem. And so he is announcing, he was announcing just a few moments ago, uh, that he plans on getting the country moving again, getting the economy going again. Uh, There are are not a lot of specifics at at this point as to how that's going to take place. uh, But you could hear where the president's mind is going in all of this. At one point, he was talking about how uh, the coronavirus so far has not been as deadly as the seasonal flu. That it's not as deadly uh, as car accidents. Those are comparisons that he made during the briefing. Uh, but, Anderson, what a huge implication in all of this uh, I mean, the questions that are going to be asked is uh, if this country reopens again, gets the economy. Uh, revved up again, does that mean people can go to the airport? Does that mean they can go out to eat in restaurants? Can they go back to the beach? Uh, And can kids go back to school and so on? So a lot of questions just haven't been answered at this point. But the president indicated very clearly uh, that uh, this era of social distancing he would like to see come to an end. And do any of the president's top medical officials
1: actually support that?
4: I think that, that is a big question at this point, and, and one thing we should point out in just the last several minutes, uh, the, the president announced that the first lady, Melania Trump, uh, has tested negative for the coronavirus of so the president, the first lady, the vice president, Mrs. Pence have all tested negative for the coronavirus. Uh, but getting to your question, Anderson, uh, it, the president uh, has been getting some pushback. Top officials have been getting some pushback uh, behind the scenes by Dr. Anthony Fauci, the top infectious diseases expert for the administration, according to uh, sources I'm talking to, uh, Dr. Fauci has been urging some of these social distancing guidelines to continue that he wants to see appropriate public health measures to continue. But you heard the president say during this briefing that you can't let these things go on forever. He doesn't want to see uh, this last for months. And he indicated during this uh, press briefing that within the next week or so, when the original 15-day period comes to an end, he's going to be making a decision. He was uh, talking at one point, Anderson, about certain parts of the country that are dealing with uh, you know, a very big outbreak, like New York City and so in New York State, uh, that those areas may remain somewhat shut down versus other states like Nebraska and Idaho that he mentioned, uh, where they don't have as big of a problem, uh, where things could reopen uh, to basically back to where they were. Uh, But Anderson, the president was pressed specifically whether or not Dr. Fauci agrees with the direction he's heading. And the president, and I think this will probably go down uh, in some infamy in, in the days to come, said Dr. Fauci doesn't not agree with me. Uh, That was not a clear answer. Uh, And even Dr. Debbie Burks, who was in the briefing, Dr. Fauci was not in the briefing, uh, said at one point she wants to look at the data. So she did not directly answer the question as to whether or not she agrees with the president's recommendations. And so it seems the doctors, uh, the top doctors of the administration and the economists inside this administration, people like Larry Kudlow who are pushing the president to get the economy going again, are on opposing sides of all of this. And and this is gonna get hashed out behind the scenes in the coming days. And in, in a pretty short order, we're going to find out where this country is going to stand in, in a not-too-distant future, Anderson. I would suspect days, not weeks from now.
1: Anderson? And we didn't hear much about the relief bill being negotiated in Congress. What's the status of that?
4: Uh, Democrats seem to be saying that there could be a deal uh, tonight or tomorrow uh, uh, to get a $2 trillion stimulus deal uh, passed by the Congress and to the president's desk uh, within the coming days. Uh, they were uh, almost at each other's throats earlier today, Anderson, where uh, the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was accusing Democrats of essentially tanking the markets, tanking the economy, uh, to get provisions that they would like to see. Uh, Democrats were saying, no, uh, the Republicans, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, uh, that he was putting uh, you know, unnecessary necessary voting guidelines uh, in way to sort of make the Democrats look bad. Uh, so they've been going at each other all day long, Anderson, but our sources are telling us that it sounds as though they're moving towards passing a stimulus bill uh, within the next day or so. The question is, is it even needed at this point at the size that they're talking about if the president is talking about reopening this economy again?
1: Right. Jim Acosta. Jim, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Even as the debate at the White House goes on over relaxing restrictions, states across the country were tightening them, bracing for the wave that could be coming their way. Today, infectious disease physicians at Emory University in Atlanta implored Georgia's governor to declare a two-week shelter-in-place order Their letter cited a model suggesting that tomorrow is a point of no return, beyond which any delay increases the chances of completely overwhelming the hospital system. And late today, Florida's governor ordered 14 days of self-isolation for anyone arriving there from New York and New Jersey. In all, at least 13 states now have some form of stay-at-home measures in effect or about to be. That includes California. CNN's Nick Watt joins us now from Los Angeles for a look at the big picture. So where do preparations and supplies stand at this hour?
0: Well, Anderson, like many other places in the country here in Los Angeles, officials are really taking the initiative. LA County and city just cut a deal with a South Korean company to buy tens of thousands of coronavirus test kits. They hope to be performing around 5,000 tests a day by the end of this week. And in terms of the bigger picture, I mean, we heard from the American Hospitals Association, and they say that Every hospital in every community will experience shortages, will experience shortages, particularly of those protective uh, equipment for the health workers. So it is not just going to be the current hotspots like New York. This massive Manhattan Convention Centre about to be converted into four field hospitals, a thousand beds between them.
4: We have not even begun to see the influx of patients. This is still the relative quiet before the storm.
0: The governor has ordered every hospital in New York to increase bed capacity by 50%. New York State now home to around half the confirmed cases in this country, with more than 20,000. That's tripled in three days. And with more than
2: 150 deaths. If we don't get the ventilators in particular, Uh, we will actually start to lose lives who could have been saved.
0: The state says many cases are ages 18 to 49. Experts suggest vaping might be a factor.
5: You can get it. The
4: numbers show you can get it if you're a young person.
0: The economy cratering. The restaurant food service industry alone estimates 7 million could lose their jobs. Restaurant manager Jay Boken already has. People are not going to be able to support their families. And stay-at-home orders still spreading Ohio, Louisiana, Connecticut, Indiana, West Virginia and Michigan among the recent additions. But not everyone is taking social distancing seriously enough.
4: We can't have the kind of social distancing that parts of Italy had, or we will turn into Italy with those case counts and those death rates.
0: More than 6,000 have now died in Italy, among them more than 20 doctors. Here, thousands of retired healthcare workers are now heeding the call to come back to work.
3: I feel I have a moral obligation to share my skills. We can't imagine what it's going to be like a week or two from now.
0: So many places now struggling for supplies.
3: We just received our
6: allotment from the federal government's national strategic stockpile. The allotment of personal protection equipment For one of our hospitals, that allotment is barely enough to cover one shift at that hospital.
0: And Mercy, the Navy hospital ship with 800 personnel aboard, today set sail for Los Angeles.
1: Is there a sense of how effective the shelter-in-place order has been there in California?
0: Well, I mean, Anderson, in terms of whether it has slowed the spread, it might be a little while before that data is really readable. But I can tell you that officials here do not think that we have been social distancing enough. And frankly, they're right. I took my kids for a hike yesterday, pulled into the parking lot. It was packed. There were maybe 40 people standing very close together, all waiting to touch that parking ticket machine. So I drove straight out. Today, the county closed all the trails, and closed the beach parking
1: lots. Anderson? Well, Nick, Watt, Nick, thanks very much. Because there are so many fast-moving developments, not just on the medical and hospital fronts, but also controversy over expanding versus narrowing the restrictions on day-to-day life, we're glad to have two medical professionals back in the program, senior Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta and Dr. Alina Wen, an emergency room physician and former health commissioner for the city of Baltimore. Sanjay, so the president is saying the country is going to be open for business soon in weeks, not months. The White House considering the idea of scaling back the social distancing guidelines, which, I mean, really just got started and in many places clearly aren't even being followed. Yeah. Does this make sense?
7: You know, look, I think any any doctor or public health official who, who looks at this, if they're being completely honest, it, it, it doesn't make sense. I mean, first of all, you know, the, the numbers are going to get worse. I, I, I think everyone sort of has conceded that point over the next week. Uh, we know that there is a lag time that's going on right now, so the numbers that we're seeing actually reflect people who may have been exposed up to a couple weeks ago. So um, I, I don't know how you could justify as the numbers are getting worse and the pace at which the numbers are getting worse. It's like building inertia. You then say at that point, let, let's pull back on... on. Uh, on the social distancing measures, it it really would not have given it a chance at at all. So I think if anyone's being honest within the the medical public health community, uh, they would say, no, now is not the time. I mean, it's gonna be greater sort of impact now. It's obviously uh, a lot to ask people to do, but unless you do it, this is gonna spread out a lot longer and and, and cause a lot more pain later on. So, you know, it doesn't make sense. I get the balance here, but it doesn't make sense, Anderson.
1: Uh, Dr. Wendy, when you hear the president say, you know, that, that the, uh, the, the, the treatment is, is worse than the, you know, the, I'm getting it wrong, the, the cure is worse than, than well, I'm totally blowing it up. Um, you know, when he says that essentially that, that it's, it's, you know, it's worse to continue these, progr- these social distancing, the isolation because it's destroying the economy, that's going to cause more harm, more deaths.
3: I mean, there's a big disconnect between what the president is saying and the reality on the ground. I mean, Sanjay mentioned the rising numbers. Well, we're also seeing doctors and nurses plead for medical equipment, plead for ventilators, plead for protective equipment. We're seeing things getting out of control with no sense of how we're going to get it under control. And then to hear the president talk about how we're going to be scaling back restrictions at a time when we have exponential spread of this disease that's killing it killed 100 people in the last 24 hours it just really doesn't make any sense and actually sends a confusing message because there are people a lot of people are taking these social distancing measures seriously but there are a lot of people who are not and for the for them to hear the president say that maybe we should pull back these these restrictions it's really not emphasizing the gravity of the situation that we have. And I really fear that if we do pull back the restrictions, we'll have many tens of thousands, if not more, deaths. And it's all going to be because we didn't listen to the public health experts.
1: Sanjay, I mean, the number of cases the U.S. Uh, in the US has more than doubled since Friday. Is that mainly because more people are being tested? Yeah.
7: I think in part it's because more people are getting tested, but I think that's also evidence that the virus is spreading and again, you know, I can't emphasize this enough, but you know, it, it's kind of like looking at the light that's coming from a star, Anderson. I mean, we know that light actually originated many, many years ago. We're just now seeing it. The same could be said for testing. So what we're seeing right now is something that's reflective of you know, maybe up to a couple weeks ago. Which, and we know that the, there's been greater spread since then. So the, the numbers, it's not just that the fact that the numbers tick up, it's the pace at which these numbers are going up. As you just mentioned, doubled since Friday, uh, 100 now sadly deaths in a single day. These numbers are going in the wrong direction. How do you then justify the strategy that was designed to try and mitigate these numbers? How do you justify pulling back on that at a time when the numbers are not only going up, but the pace at which they're going up is increasing as well? So it's, it is testing, but I think the, the, the evidence of spread is clear as well.
1: And Sanjay, what's the breakdown of cases, young people, older people, those with underlying health conditions?
7: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because everyone, uh, I think, often looks at this as a binary thing, people who survived, people who died, uh, which is a fair way to look at this. But I think the fact that people are getting sick and requiring hospitalization, even at a younger age, is a point that's, that's worth emphasizing. So there's a study came out that looked at about some 500 patients in the United States and found that about 12% of them required hospitalization. So, you know, 50 to 60 patients. So, so over 10% are requiring hospitalization. The biggest group of people requiring hospitalization was those 65 to 84. About a third of those hospitalized fell into that age group. But, Anderson, uh, people aged 20 to 44, about 20, they, they made up about 20% of the hospitalizations as well. So, yes, they are much more likely to survive. They're much more likely to recover if you're younger. But, you know, it, it can be a significant illness. And I think, you know, that, that shouldn't be minimized either, Anderson.
1: And Dr. Wen, you have the Surgeon General saying today that this week it's going to get, get bad. Any sense of how bad?
3: It's definitely going to get bad. And I would say that it's already gotten bad. It's just going to get worse this week and worse next week. And how bad it gets depends on the actions that we each can take today. And this is why I know we've talked about this so much, Anderson, but the idea of taking matters into your own hands, doing what you can. And I like what Sanjay often says about this, which is that we should act as if we each have coronavirus and that other people around us all have it as well. If we each behave that way, and think about how can I protect myself? How can I protect those around me? And how can I reduce the rate of transmission in the community? We actually have a chance of slowing this down. We have a chance of saving people's lives. But that takes each of us. And I would say it takes the federal government too. It's hard to ask people to take matters into our own hands and do what we can if we don't see the federal government also stepping up and doing everything in their power to assist state and local officials mm-hmm. and to assist people on the ground.
1: Yeah, Sanji, you heard from the Michigan governor in uh, Nick Watts' piece, you know, the, the, the allotment they got of personal protective equipment for, uh, for their state was, as you know, uh, she said, would in, like, cover one shift in one hospital.
7: That, I mean, that, that is the issue here. You know, I mean, you know, these, these frontline workers, they have to assume that every patient they're dealing with uh has the virus Uh, you know even if they're coming in for a non-infection related thing they got to put on the personal protective equipment and and act as if you know the patients have the virus and that's why they're running out so quickly i mean you know i i don't want to harp on this point anderson but you know we've known this for some time we've known that up to three billion masks were going to be necessary that's what the buying time was all about since the beginning of this year so it's 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 sad that we're finding ourselves behind now in, in, in this particular regard because they can't they can't protect themselves
1: yeah. Uh, Dr. Wen, uh, Sanjay, stick around. Coming up next, uh, Dr. Wen, thank you. Coming I mean, next, we're going to be joined by a doctor who has asked a similar question to the president, namely, in the words of his New York Times opinion piece, is our fight against coronavirus worse than the disease? We'll talk to him ahead. And later, a report from the original front lines, what nurses at the Life Care Center in Kirkland, Washington, have to say about what they've experienced. As we reported at the top of the hour, the Surgeon General says Americans should prepare for the pandemic in this country to get worse. In the breaking news, at his news conference just a short time ago, President Trump agreed. Nevertheless, he flirted with the idea of easing the guidelines that have closed businesses across the country, suggesting the cure should not be worse than the problem. Most health officials agree with the current measures. Over the weekend, The New York Times published an editorial arguing for a more surgical approach. QUOTING FROM THE ARTICLE, I BELIEVE WE MAY BE INEFFECTIVELY FIGHTING THE CONTAGION EVEN AS WE ARE CAUSING ECONOMIC COLLAPSE, UNQUOTE. JOINING ME NOW IS THE AUTHOR OF THAT EDITORIAL, DR. DAVID KATZ, AN AUTHOR AND FORMER DIRECTOR OF THE YALE GRIFFIN PREVENTION RESEARCH CENTER. BACK WITH US ALSO IS DR. SANJAY GUPTA. HE'LL ASK SOME QUESTIONS AS WELL. Um, DR. KATZ, YOUR ARTICLE IS FASCINATING. YOU, you WRITE ABOUT uh, NEEDING MORE OF A SURGICAL, IF THIS IS A WAR, WHICH THE you know, PRESIDENT AND OTHER POLITICIANS HAVE USED THAT ANALOGY, RATHER THAN a ALL-OUT, Uh, campaign, you're proposing a more surgical strike or raising the idea of a surgical strike. Can you explain what that would look like?
8: Yeah, well, Anderson, great to be with you and really good to be with my friend Sanjay. And the first thing I want to say is that I'm completely in support of what we're doing right now. Social distancing, sheltering in place, doing everything possible to mitigate spread of the virus, which if all the infections spread at once, to the most vulnerable people really can cause uh, a huge surge in severe infection, death, overwhelm the medical system, totally in support of the public health measures. But if I may, Anderson, you know, at the beginning of this, I, I, I want to put a human face to it. I'm thinking about people like my parents. Uh, my parents are both 80 and generally in pretty good health. And they are sheltering in place and separated from the rest of the family because, you know, they, they really can't associate with young people who could potentially inadvertently transmit the virus. And I've spoken to them both about, you know, what are you most concerned about right now? And my father, uh, his biggest concern, he obviously doesn't want to get coronavirus and die, certainly. But right now the recommendations seem to be an indefinite period of shutting everything down. His biggest worry is his life's legacy, losing his life savings, everything he's worked. He's a cardiologist uh, up until recently. was still seeing patients and, and, you know, really deeply concerned that his entire life is uh, everything he's worked for may slip through his fingers in, in this twilight period. And my mother's biggest worry uh, is that she may be required to stay in social isolation so long right. that she dies of something else before she can ever hug her grandchildren again. What I'm suggesting is, We use this period where we do everything possible to mitigate spread, gather data to see who is subject to severe infection, risk of death, and what segment of the population is not. And I've looked across the seas to the data from other countries. South Korea has done the best job of gathering data. Germany's not far behind. South Korea reports that 99 percent of all cases are mild, and the high risk is very concentrated in the elderly and people with chronic illness. We can use this initial period to tell people, look, we're going to carefully gather data. I think, it's, I think it's folly to say it's a week or two. It's some amount of time to reach a critical mass of data to say we can now very clearly risk stratify. There's a large section of the population, maybe very prone to get the infection, but it's extremely likely it'll be mild. And then a portion of the population we have to very diligently protect because they can't afford to get it, they're prone to severe infections. So how
1: how would that work? If you're saying essentially focus on the most vulnerable, uh, gather data right. now, keep the things in place currently, but ultimately use that data to see if it aligns with South Korea. What you you mentioned uh, the Diamond Princess data uh, and right. and 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 sort of mobilize forces sure, to protect the protect the, uh, the the elderly. How would you do that though? Would they be socially iso- isolated then? They would would still be in some sort of quarantine, I assume.
8: Yeah, well, see, they're doing it now. So, you know, again, I'm not proposing anything for the high-risk population that we aren't doing now, except maybe more, Uh, because, you know, for example, we sent college students home. We laid off young people from businesses that shuttered. A lot of those came back home to live with their older parents, including in my house. So three of our kids came back home, two college students from Boston, one who was working in New York City, to potentially infect their almost 60-something parents. And, right. and by the way, I'm not feeling it, right? So, you know, that may have happened. Now, thankfully, my wife and I are very healthy, and I suspect if we get this, it'll be very mild. But, yeah, I, I would say we double down to make sure we identify the people most at risk of severe infection and death. It appears to be a relatively small segment of the population. I don't think anybody should be too sure of that too soon. So, I Sanjay, think one of the things we need to do... Sorry. Ahead, Sanjay, sorry. I, want, I want you to be able
1: to, to ask a question here.
7: Yeah. Um, so, so Dr. Katz, uh, it's good to see you. You, you. So you're basically saying that the the current plan you, you, you agree with, but as time goes on and more data is collected, that uh, we may better be able to identify exactly how the strategy changes. And 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 I think most people have said that should focus on the vulnerable populations. The the one thing I do want to ask you about though is is you know everyone sort of uses this did they live or did they die sort of scenario. Um, If you look at the data here and granted it's early data here in the united states about 20 percent of uh, the hospitalizations are in people between the ages of 20 and 44. so they're recovering but they do need to be hospitalized and some of them have longer term problems you know lung function problems stuff like that how how would you how would you address that
8: yeah well i I think it's a crucial point sanjay and and just to reiterate i don't think we have enough data in the united states to make well-informed decisions And we shouldn't make next decisions until we do. What I'm talking about is to very carefully do case ascertainment, find out where this is, find out if there are low-risk populations, and, and do that here in the United States so we don't just assume what happened in South Korea will happen here. But I think what we could do is tell the public now, look, this is not an indefinite hunker with your anxiety and dread and you know hope there's a vaccine so you eventually get to see your grandchildren again. No, we we have a specific plan, it's in phases. This phase is we mitigate spread, you stay socially distanced from one another while we gather data to see if we can do a risk-stratified approach. And then the idea there is that you know the data will tell us we can or we can't. I think they'll say we can. And what I would say about young people, Sanjay, is You know, again, early in an outbreak, you don't miss people who need hospital beds. You don't need somebody and you you don't miss somebody in your ICU. You don't miss deaths. Those are obvious events. Young people with extremely mild symptoms who don't report them to anybody and just go about their business are easily overlooked unless you go out looking for them. South Korea did that and their data show. So I think they still have the best in the world population level data. Ninety nine percent of cases Mm. are reported as mild. We have no reason to think that's going to be very different here. What's very different here so far is the degree to which we're finding cases. Uh, Governor Cuomo reported today that in the last 24 hours, for example, in New York, they wrapped up, ramped up from uh, doing 1,000 tests a day to doing 16,000 tests a day, and they intend to ramp up further. I think we're going to have much more detailed understanding of what our data show very soon, and we need to wait for that. But I think we could plan... If the data allow us to pivot from what I call horizontal interdiction, shut everything down, keep everybody away from everybody else, to vertical interdiction that's risk-based, because we're going to hurt people other ways than with the virus, right? I mean, again, people's life savings are being lost. They're despairing. uh, They're anxious. uh, They may be hesitating to seek medical attention for other problems. They may be experiencing hunger. Uh, resource interruptions, service interruptions that that, threaten their health. The social determinants of health are a hugely important issue in health, and and those are going to be affected too. What I'm proposing really is what is the best sequence, phase sequence of strategies to minimize all of the harm? The direct harm of the virus, absolutely crucial, but also the indirect harm. We are at risk of hurting people, seriously hurting them, and causing deaths by our responses to the virus if mm-hmm. we don't optimize them.
1: Dr. David Katz, uh, I, I urge people to uh, to read your uh, your piece and I appreciate it and uh, hope to talk to you again, uh, no doubt, in, in the coming days. David Katz, thank you. Dr. Santé Gupta is gonna thank stay you. with us. Thank coming you. up next, we're gonna uh, fact check President Trump on those drugs he repeatedly says could be a game changer. What does the evidence actually say when we return? Hey, Dr. Katz, it's Anderson. Uh, thank you so much. I'm sorry we got, we got tight at the end, but uh, I really appreciate it. It was uh, It's really fascinating, and, and uh, it, yeah, I would love to have you back and, and when we have a, a more time, too.
8: Very good, Anderson. I, I really appreciate it. And if Sanjay's not still on the line, again, tell him uh, I appreciate all okay. that he does so much. It will do. Thank all you right. very much. All right, take care. Be careful. Okay. Stay well. You too. Hey, uh, Dr. Katz, just while we're—I
1: while I don't know if you're still there. I'm,
8: I'm still here. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah just— is that data being collected now? I mean, it, it, does that just come? Yes. It, does that So are there people actually kind of planning
8: like you think they should be? Yes, yes. Well, well I, I spoke to Governor Cuomo uh, at, at length this morning before his press conference, mm-hmm. um, and he's absolutely committed to that. They, they want to go out and find out you know, what are, where are all these cases that we weren't finding because they were relatively mild. Absolutely. Um, so okay. you know, the, the data cap is going to happen. That should inform the next phase of this. And again, the goal is harm minimization by the infection and by the fallout of effectively shutting down the entire economy.
1: That's good. Well, Cuomo seems on top of it, which I'm, I'm very happy yeah, about. But yeah, I, I, yeah.
8: I, I like him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah um, I think he's doing a very thoughtful job. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you again. I really appreciate it. It's so important that uh, you, uh, you wrote that article. Thank
8: you. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. very much, Anderson. You too. Bye-bye.
1: The president again today touted several drugs that he believes might help against coronavirus. He again used the word game changer today for one of them, a malaria drug, chloroquine. That's also used to treat lupus and which is now in short supply for some who need it for lupus and other things. He told the story of a man whom he did not name who took the drug and recovered. He did not tell the story of the Arizona man and his wife who self-dosed on chloroquine phosphate, which is used to clean aquariums. That man died. His wife is critically ill, likely because of something they saw or read about chloroquine. Despite a new but still not peer-reviewed study out today identifying 69 drugs that might be effective against the virus, what's lacking is a solid body of evidence that any of them work and are safe. More now on the subject from Dr. Sanjay Gupta.
2: Why should we be testing it in a test tube for a year and a half when we have thousands of people that are very sick? They're very, very sick. And we can use it. On those people and maybe make them better, and in some cases maybe save their lives.
7: President Trump says he's optimistic about some potential treatments for the novel coronavirus, in particular, a malaria drug called chloroquine. You know, this has been something that's
2: been around for many years. Uh, It's been phenomenal, strong, powerful drug uh, for malaria. But we think it might work on this,
7: based on evidence, based on very strong evidence. It's true, the medication has been around for more than 80 years and has a few side effects, including nausea and mood changes, as well as possible interactions with other drugs. Now, enthusiasm for the possibility of treating the novel coronavirus largely centers on one study out of France, which used a derivative of chloroquine used with an antibiotic, commonly known as the ZPAC. The study was small, and the patients were followed for only six days.
2: The study that looked at that drug and showed um, activity Uh, was a a study that involved about 20 patients and only six in the arm that showed the benefit. And the benefit that they showed was that they decreased the amount of virus in in their noses when you did nasal swabs in those patients. So it could very well be that the drug is reducing viral shedding but having no impact on the clinical course of those patients. So the data on that is very preliminary.
7: We took a closer look at the study, and here's what we found. There were originally 26 patients in the study who were treated. 20 completed the trial. One left the hospital before the trial ended. One couldn't tolerate the medication. Three went to the intensive care unit. That's an 11% critical care rate. And one died, a 4% mortality rate. Now, those numbers are higher critical care and mortality rates than the general population of infected. But Keep in mind, again, it's a small study. There was another study from 2011 which found that while chloroquine was effective in the lab against the flu, It ultimately wasn't effective in humans. Look, that's why trials are needed, and they can be done quickly. Many labs in the World Health Organization had already started studying these drugs and dozens of others to help us find an answer for a disease that currently has no known cure.
4: Using untested medicines without the right evidence could raise false hope and even do more harm than good and cause a shortage of essential medicines that are needed to treat other diseases.
7: And at the end of last week, chloroquine was added to the American Society of Health System Pharmacists' drug shortage list. So
1: Sanjay, I mean, is there a timeline of just when more of these trials might be completed by
7: well, you know, uh, it, it's probably going to be a few months. You know, it's, it's hard to say. There's there's two trials that are going on with chloroquine. One is for treatment, and one is to try and give more of, as a prophylaxis to try and prevent people from getting as bad an infection. It's going to take a while, Anderson. I mean, the fact that it's an existing drug, that helps. But you still got to go through trials. I mean, it's not entirely clear at all that this has worked. There was a a very promising trial uh, that just ended uh, last week, Anderson. uh, Probably the most promising trial started just a week after the first patient was diagnosed. And after they went through the trial, they found that it didn't work, this particular uh, uh, drug therapy. So they move on. Uh, You've got to do these trials to make sure you're actually dealing with what you think you're dealing with.
1: It is so interesting to have the president of the United States kind of touting these And the medical folks, you know, Dr. Fauci and others standing behind him, sort of not wanting to contradict him directly and say, essentially, you know, there's a reason studies are done. Things might look good on paper or might look good in a test tube. But unless it's actually been legitimately studied, you can't say. But this president does say.
7: Yeah, I mean, look, that, 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 was, uh, that was wild, frankly, to, to watch this back and forth between President Trump and, and, and Dr. Anthony Fauci. I mean, you know, uh, Dr. Fauci was sort of just having to sort of fact check on the fly. But look, you know, there's a lot of hunches out there. There's, there's dozens of drugs that are being looked at right now. There's lots of hunches out there. But the reality is that most of them don't really get beyond phase two trials. So, again, that's why you've got to do the, do, do the studies, Anderson.
1: Yeah. Uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks very much. Just ahead, nurses of the Life Care Center outside of Seattle saw the coronavirus effect infect staff and residents before many knew its full effect of their story when we return.
5: Think about your home for a moment. It's where life happens. It's where you build that treehouse or try that new recipe. It's where you rest and recharge, work and play. You expect a lot out of it. And that's why HomeAdvisor is committed to keeping your home up and running, no matter what. They match you with the best pros in your area. Pros who can get your home projects done right, from unexpected jobs like appliance repairs, clogged gutters, and leaky faucets, to projects you actually look forward to, like creating your very own backyard summer retreat or getting that new pool installed. Whatever it is, they're here to help. And the Home Advisor app makes it easy. Use it to book and pay for more than 100 projects with just a few taps. Plus, if you're looking for some local inspiration, you can see trending tasks in your neighborhood. So whether you need a last-minute fix routine home maintenance, or an exciting new upgrade, HomeAdvisor is here, ready to do everything to fix your everything. Download the Home Advisor app and get started today. Some breaking news
1: in just the last few minutes. Washington State Governor Jay Inslee issuing a stay-at-home order for the next two weeks, effective immediately. He said, I'm quoting now, this weapon, distancing ourselves, is the only weapon we have against this virus. If you know better than the citizens of Washington, especially the nurses at the Life Care Center nursing home outside of Seattle who lived through as the virus before it was called a pandemic infected staff and residents. It's the first time they're telling their story. More from our Sarah Seidner.
9: It was like a war zone. So all of a the sudden there were so many patients. Everybody needed medications. Everybody needed treatment.
6: We had Uh, 70 staff within a week that were out. These healthcare workers were among the first to battle a COVID-19 outbreak in America. Few in the United States have more experience with the deadly toll it took. How quickly do you see the demise of someone with COVID-19? Less than 24 hours. They work at Life Care Center of Kirkland, the nursing home where the first known U.S. cluster of COVID-19 deaths and infections occurred. For a month, they have been treating and continue to treat coronavirus-infected patients. Have any of you had symptoms of the novel coronavirus? No. No, Have any of you tested positive for COVID-19? For weeks, this was the location of the most deaths from the novel coronavirus in the United States. This is the first time their story of what happened
9: inside has been told. If you Google um, signs and symptoms of coronavirus, it's runny nose, fever and cough. I haven't seen a runny nose yet. Um, What I see is much different than that. Um, I saw what I describe as red eyes. I'd never heard of red eyes before. Why is that? Is that information just not gotten out to the public? It's something that I witnessed in all of them. And they have like, um, you can describe it like allergy eyes. The white part of your eye is not red. It's more like they have um, red eye shadow on on the outside of their eyes. But we've had patients that just had the red eyes as the only symptom that we saw and go to the hospital and pass away in the hospital. As of now, the
6: CDC does not
9: list red eyes as a
6: symptom of COVID-19. Chelsea Ernest is a registered nurse and the nursing director at another life care center facility in Washington state. And that is what she saw. When an urgent call for help came from the Kirkland facility, she volunteered. She arrived one day after the staff learned a patient tested positive for coronavirus. Why did you answer the call? You didn't have to be there.
9: This was voluntary. Well, I'm, I'm a nurse and uh, they're not my patients, um, but hold on. I'm sorry. It's OK. Take a breath.
6: Ernest and her fellow staff members saw the death toll rise like a rocket. The terrifyingly fast deterioration of the patients always seemed to happen on the night shift. Her
9: shift. That's how I describe it. it is you're, you're going off to war and you're in a battlefield where supplies are limited. Um, the help is slow to get to you. Um, and there's lots of casualties and, and you can't see the enemy and you can't see the enemy. Suddenly,
6: a third of the staff had symptoms and was out sick. Everyone knew it. The virus was sweeping through the entire building. It was the oldest patients who were dying fast. The average age was 80 years old. Nancy Butner is the vice president of Life Care Centers of America Northwest Division. Just the patients, losing them, because we lived with them for so long. It's hard. After two days of madness, things seemed to calm, but not for long. There was a little lull, and I heard a cough, and so I started following the coughs. According to the CDC and Life Care Center, at the height of infections, 129 people linked to this nursing home tested positive. Three quarters of the patients, about a third of the staff, and 14 visitors. 29 people associated with this facility have died due to coronavirus. In the weeks that followed, the CDC came out with a report on the facility. It found in part the facility's limitations in effective infection control and prevention and staff members working in multiple facilities contributed to the spread of the virus both inside the facility and out. Many nursing staff work in one or more facilities. Do you think that that will change the idea of having people work at different facilities after covid-19 i I don't know that it that it would it's you know and and again in healthcare you work in different settings if everyone was trained on infection control how is it that so many patients got covid-19 and so many members of the staff also got covid-19
9: there's usually two patients to a room and some of the rooms are bigger and they have three patients and you have caregiving staff that are very close to their residents. Um, we hug them, we kiss them, we love them. And I couldn't have been uh, perfect on my PPE process. i are um,
6: saying wearing the personal protection mm-hmm. equipment, you couldn't have been perfect because things were happening so fast, mm-hmm. you were trying to save lives. Mm-hmm. She arrived after the first person tested positive. It took five days to get the results frightened families were outside furious. Who is they so we can follow up with it? They couldn't get information on their loved ones for days. We just could not answer the phone quick enough. We had a significant drop in staff. We had significant care needs that were a priority over Unfortunately, talking to families on the phone. In those first few days, the Life Care Center said they made a cry for help to government agencies from county to federal to state. Did you get what you need when you needed it? No. No. No one was doing just one job. Stephanie Booth is in charge of payroll. I um, worked in the kitchen. I don't know, I've done a little bit of everything. I did some housekeeping. Everyone was doing everything until doctors and nurses arrived from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Health and Human Services. The number of patients in the facility has dropped now from 120 to 42. Of those 42 patients, 31 have tested positive for novel coronavirus. What advice would you give other facilities other doctors and nurses, other staff members about dealing with COVID-19.
9: I didn't expect it to be so lethal. And, and I have no shame in saying that I was wrong.
6: Anderson, Chelsea Ernest says she was wrong about thinking that the coronavirus was kind of like the flu she does not think that anymore. and they do admit as a staff that they did make some mistakes, but they say they were the first in the matter in America to battle this new virus.
1: Yeah, Anderson. Well, I mean, just a reminder of all those nurses and doctors out there right now risking their lives. sir Seidner, thank you very much. Up next. Yeah. Remem- remembering some of the lives lost to coronavirus, a doctor included a mom, others when we continue. So far, more than 500 people have died in the U.S. from the coronavirus, and we wanted to take a moment to remember some of those whose lives have been stolen from them. They're not statistics or numbers. They're people who are loved by family and friends and are missed greatly. Dr. Stephen Schwartz was a well-known pathologist at the University of Washington. Dr. Schwartz was renowned for his research into vascular biology. His colleagues said he was larger than life and leaves a lasting imprint not only on the university but on the broader scientific community. Dr. Schwartz was 78 years old. Bill Pike thought he had a case of pneumonia when he went into a Connecticut hospital. His family says this was before they were aware of the threat of the virus. In the end, his loved ones couldn't be by his bed holding his hand. They had to say goodbye to him by phone from quarantine. Those who knew him describe him as a person of incredible character, an old-school gentleman who treated everyone equally. They're taking some comfort in knowing he had a long life that was filled with joy and love. Bill Pike was 91 years old. Patricia Friesen worked as a nurse before she retired. Her brother says he wanted to go into the field because of her faith. She says she felt she needed to help people. She went to the hospital because she thought her asthma was acting out, but she became the first person to die in Illinois from the virus. Patricia Friesen was 61 years old. Sunday Rutter from Washington State was a fighter. She survived stage four breast cancer, but not the virus. She's described as being the kindest person you'd ever meet, a single mom with six beautiful kids and she loved them fiercely. She was always careful about germs because of her compromised immune system from her cancer treatments. She died about a, a week after being admitted to the hospital. Sunday Rudder was 42 years old. Larry Larry Edgeworth was a longtime employee of NBC News. He worked in the equipment room at 30 Rock in New York City. He'd worked before that as an audio technician for NBC, traveled around the world for the network. He'd seen a lot of things. He was the type of guy who wanted to be by your side, according to his colleagues. They called him a gentle bear of a man who always had your back. Larry Edgeworth was 61 years old. Our coverage of the coronavirus continues right now. I want to hand it over to Chris for Cuomo Prime Time. Chris?